First Peter chapter 3, we begin in verse 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of verse 12. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. For his name's sake. I'd like to call your attention to verse 10 in particular. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. He that will love life and see good days. Think about that for a moment, okay? That section of the verse, that phrase, loving life and seeing good days. There's something serenely beautiful and tranquil in those words, isn't there? Loving life and seeing good days. It brings to mind the peaceful scene that's brought before our eyes when we read the 23rd Psalm. Psalm 23, we are led to green pastures beside still waters. Or it can bring to mind a scene from the book of Esther after the Jews have been delivered from Haman's plot to extinguish them. And following that reversal, there was a national holiday that can remind one even of Christmas when you read in Esther chapter 8 and verse 17. And in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. In the next chapter, if we find Mordecai decreeing a national holiday in which this good day, so to speak, was established. And it was marked as a day of feasting and giving gifts to the poor. Good days are certainly desirable days, aren't they? And now we find Peter addressing this very issue of loving life and seeing good days. The only problem with Peter's words is, They really seem to be out of place in this epistle, if you read the entire letter. You see in the earlier chapters and in the subsequent chapters that the situation confronting those Christians that are addressed here, and remember who they are, they are Christians scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and they were knowing anything but peaceful days, anything but good days. When you read the statements that describe their trials, it doesn't exactly bring to mind the scene in the 23rd Psalm, unless perhaps you reference the verse there that says, 
Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Verse 5. Peter rather references their heaviness in the midst of manifold temptations or trials. Chapter 1 and verse 6. And in chapter 4 and verse 12, he exhorts them, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, that is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. And near the end of the epistle, he pronounces a benediction. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. The setting for First Peter, then, is simply not a setting of serene tranquility, and yet we still discover Peter appealing to their desire for loving life and seeing good days. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Such a statement, occurring as it does in such a setting, certainly presents to us, doesn't it, the potential for loving life and seeing good days, even in these days in which we live. And I know that might seem incredible on the surface of it, especially when you look at the sorry state of the world today, and with all the corruption and the mudslinging and the self-promotion and self-seeking, the mistrust, the sin, the violence, the crime, not to mention the plans that are in the minds of many to make life seemingly impossible for Christians. And when you look to a large degree at the sorry state of the church and how large a segment of the population that actually call themselves Christians is so willing to forsake God's word and go with the flow. All these circumstances would seem to make Peter's words almost beyond application in our day. Loving life and seeing good days? What? Are you kidding? I can't deny that with each passing week and month, I grow more and more anxious to bail out of the scene of time. I become glad that I'm not any younger than I am. It encourages me, actually, to think that I may be just about in the final lap of my time in this world. But then I find myself having to check myself and having to admit to myself that that's not the right way to think. You look at how the early church was treated, and you call to mind Acts chapter 8, that gives us the account of those early Christians being scattered out of Jerusalem. They had to leave everything behind. And then you continue to read in that chapter of how great joy was in the wake of everywhere they went because they went everywhere preaching the gospel. And you suddenly realize that the potential really does exist for loving life and seeing good days. Peter was not simply trying to prop up sorely tried Christians with some kind of idealistic but unrealistic pep talk. No, he really means it when he speaks of loving life and seeing good days. So what does it take, then? 
How is that potential realized? It obviously can't happen with the Christian the way it happens in the world, for the world can only gauge its days by how smooth the ship is sailing. What does Peter tell us about loving life and seeing good days that will enable us to love life and see good days? Well, that's what I want to focus on for a few moments this afternoon. This theme of loving life and seeing good days. How can we as Christians love life and see good days? Well, consider with me first, we must practice the ethics behind loving life and seeing good days. There is an ethical consideration here. We must practice the ethics. You'll notice that in verse 10 and the verses around it, there are certain ethics that are given to us both positively and negatively. It's interesting to note how grammatically, beginning in verse 8, Peter is not so much setting forth what a Christian should and shouldn't do as much as he's describing what a Christian is and is not. The words in these verses you see are adjectives and participles which describe the Christian. He's described, for example, as one who else is of one mind or who is united with other believers. The words be ye, you'll notice, are in parentheses, but the actual word is a singular word in the phrase of, of one mind. It's a descriptive word. It's an adjective. It tells us what a Christian is. Let all be harmonious, another English version says. And I like that translation because it captures the difference between uh, what I like to refer to as unity and uniformity. If the call was for uniformity, then the idea would be let all be done, not harmoniously, but let everything be done in unison. But by calling for all to be harmonious, Peter is recognizing a diversity of gifts and tastes that are united in a common bond, that bond being Christ, and which blend well together to create a beautiful sound, as it were, a harmonious sound, I love it when we sing certain psalms or hymns in which some, and on occasion we do experience this, some of the men or some of the women are gifted enough in their abilities to sing that they're able to sing parts, and the resulting sound is rich and harmonious and pleasing to the ear, and it's in that sense, in that harmonious sense that Christians are to be united. They're to be harmonious. They are also compassionate. Again, a descriptive word, okay? And let me read the verse. We're in verse 9 here. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, that knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, his lips that they speak no guile, let him eschew evil and do good, let him seek peace and ensue it. Okay? And these duties are, like I say, descriptive words, not simply verbs that tell us what to do. He will be compassionate because he is compassionate. 
These descriptions bring to mind the Beatitudes that Christ utilizes in the Sermon on the Mount. And in those statements that begin with that word blessed, Christ describes what a true subject of the kingdom of heaven is. He does what he does because of what he is. He is one that could be described as poor in spirit. He could be described as one who mourns over sins and hungers and thirsts for righteousness. All these are things that he may strive for, but he does so by virtue of what he is as a Christian. Peter, you could say, is using a similar method here to describe what a Christian is. I read a sermon in which the preacher pointed out that these descriptions are not natural to the natural man, but they become natural in a sense for the Christian that has been born from above. So he's harmonious with other Christians, he's compassionate, and he's one who practices brotherly love. There's the next descriptive term. It's translated, it translates the phrase, love as brethren. That adjective contains the word Philadelphia. You are aware, I'm sure, that Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Well, why is that? It's because that's what the name of the city means. Not necessarily that that's the way the people are, but it's what Philadelphia means. It comes from a Greek word that means brotherly love. That's the meaning of that term. So you begin to see then a strong emphasis on the Christian being characterized as one who is loving. And two Greek words are utilized by Peter to describe that love. The word pathos, here translated compassion. And the next word, Philadelphia, translated love as brethren. The meaning of the word pitiful is perhaps captured better by those translations that use the word tender-hearted or kind-hearted. And then when you come to the last word in the verse, courteous, you're dealing with a descriptive word that one commentator describes as genuine Christian politeness. That's a concept that I'm afraid quite escapes our culture in decadent days. And unfortunately can escape some who profess to be Christians as well. I can remember years ago, my older sister was sharing with me, this was back when we were in our teenage, early 20s, she was describing that time in her life when she had spent a summer in the city of Milwaukee living with our grandma and working for the same company that my grandma worked for. She told me, and I never forgot this, this was odd even back then, although you go back a little further, it wouldn't be so strange. She said in the place where she worked, whenever she entered a room where men were seated, they would always rise, they would always stand, because a lady had entered the room. They did this as a matter of courtesy and respect for a lady that had entered the room. I wonder... Men, look around here, see how many people I can take with me in this uh, convicting statement. How many of you open the car door for your wives? Or pull out a chair for her to help her be seated when you go into a restaurant? Let me tell you something. 
If you're ever around Joel Beakey for any time, you'll discover that he's on top of those simple rules. And if you don't open the car door for your wife, he will. (laughs) And uh, I've seen that happen. Don't ask me how I know that. Um, There's a scriptural warrant. That's what I'm getting at here. A scriptural warrant for the kind of thing that is looked at today as old-fashioned and outdated. It's simple, common courtesy and politeness and respect. These are some of the things that those that love life and would see good days practice. Now, when you come to verse 9, you meet up with the first negative description of the man who loves life and would see good days. Here's a couple of things that don't characterize him, or some things that, at the very least, he strives to avoid. He doesn't render evil for evil or railing for railing. He's not governed, in other words, by a mindset that tells him he needs to get even or that he needs to trade insults with someone who may be mistreating him. But in fact, he does the very opposite. Note the word contrarywise. That word sets up the contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. It's the unbeliever who finds himself compelled to get even. It's the unbeliever that hurls insults and trades insults. In contrast to what the unbeliever renders, the Christian renders blessing. Look at what it says, verse 9. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. I'm going to come back to verse 9 in a moment and enlarge on it some more. For now we're simply noting the ethics of those that love life and would see good days. And keep in mind, again, the setting of Peter's epistle. He's not setting out rules that only apply in a context of polite society. Peter is describing the Christian even as that Christian lives in a hostile environment. He doesn't get pulled down to the same level as the world. He stands out in contrast to the world in terms of his demeanor and his attitude and his words. His words become the next thing that Peter brings into focus when he says in verse 10, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Another contrast is set forth in the next verse, verse 11. Let him eschew evil and do good. There's another King James word for you, that word eschew. That word brings Job to mind as he's described in the very first chapter of his book as one that was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. The idea is that the believer turns away from evil. He aims in a different direction. He's engaged in altogether different activities. Instead of doing evil, he's doing good. And in his pursuit of doing good, he seeks peace and ensues it, verse 11. And the word ensue is the same Greek word that is often translated by the word persecute. You see the contrast The one who loves life and would see good days pursues peace with the same zeal that the enemies of Christ would persecute Christians. You know, it may be this very virtue in particular 
that is having an impact on Muslims in our day. I've heard it told, I've read the reports, maybe you have too, the reports that tell you that there have been more Muslims converted to Christ in the last 50 years than there have been in the past 1,500 years. And why do you suppose that may be? It would certainly have to be at least in part due to the very contrast that's described here by Peter. The believer loves life and would see good days, and in that love he seeks peace and pursues it. He lives out and proclaims the gospel of peace, and he tells of Jesus, the Savior of sinners, who made peace with God possible. So these are the ethics, then, of one who loves life and would see good days. I said a moment ago, these things don't come naturally to the man whose carnal mind is at enmity with God, and the Christian must indeed devote himself to cultivating these virtues, so long as he sows to the Spirit and not to the flesh, and keeps his mind stayed on Christ, these virtues will describe him in terms of what he does and does not do. But let's think next on the Christian's motivation for loving life and seeing good days. We've seen his ethics. The next thing we must see is what it takes to make him tick, so to speak. And this leads to our next consideration, which is the outlook for loving life and seeing good days. That outlook, you could say, is directly related to his calling. And his calling is mentioned by Peter in verse 9. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. This is one of those verses that presents something of a grammatical puzzle to those who analyze it. The question that arises from the verse is, what does this calling pertain to? Listen to the way one preacher describes this seeming dilemma. Does the verse mean... Bless those who insult you because you were called to live this way. Fulfill that calling so that you will inherit a blessing. Or does the verse mean, bless those who insult you because you were called to inherit a blessing. Does the calling refer to what comes before giving blessings to others or to what comes after inheriting a blessing? Those who interpret the verse to mean that we're called to live the kind of life in which we bless those who insult us call our attention back to the words of chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. So there's undoubtedly a sense in which the Christian's calling is a calling to render blessing for insults rather than evil for evil or railing for railing. But is that the only way to interpret chapter 3 and verse 9? 
Interesting to note just how Peter makes reference to the Christian's call. No less than five times does he make reference to the Christian's calling. The first reference is a call found in chapter 1, verse 15. It makes reference to the character of God who issues the call, where we read, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Next reference is in chapter 2 and verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The next reference, the one we read, is in chapter 2, verse 21, and could be interpreted as a call to suffering. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us. Then there's our text for today in chapter 3 and verse 9. Knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. One more reference to the Christian's calling in a benediction that occurs in chapter 5 and verse 10. But the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. So by compiling and analyzing these verses, you could say that as a Christian, you are called to holiness. You are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are called to suffer. You are called to bless others. And you are called to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. When you look at all these verses, you can see that there's more to compare our text to than just chapter 2 and verse 21. And if you care to expand the study beyond this first epistle of Peter, you can note a few other things about the Christian's calling. That calling pertains to being a saint, called to be saints, Romans 1, 7. It's a call to liberty, Galatians 5, 13. It's a call to peace in Colossians 3.15. It's a call to eternal life in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12. And it's a call into the grace of Christ, Galatians 1 and verse 6. The nature of this calling is such that it's described as a holy calling, 2 Timothy 1.9, and a heavenly calling in Hebrews 3 and verse 1. Among the things that Paul prays for with regard to the saints at Ephesus is that they would know in their hearts what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So when we see two possible interpretations in our text in 1 Peter 3, 9, pertaining to the way we live or the blessing we inherit, my thought is, why do I have to pick one over the other when both are so clearly true? You are called to bless others, even those that insult you. You are not to be pulled down to their level, but you're to rise above the world and the flesh, and you're too, in the words of Christ in Matthew 5, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. 
And the thing that will enable you to do what doesn't come naturally to the flesh and is quite impossible for the sinner who's never been born from above, the thing that will enable you to do it will be your outlook on life. And what is your outlook on life? It's simply this. You've been called to inherit a blessing. You've inherited the blessing of life. You've inherited the blessing of liberty and peace and eternal glory. You've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. You have not only gained a great inheritance in Christ so as to make you a joint heir with Christ in all that he inherits, but strange as it may seem, Christ has gained an inheritance in you. You are his purchased possession. You are the reward of his perfect life and atoning death. And when Paul's prayer for the saints at Ephesus is utilized by you, and you have made it your prayer so that you know in the depth of your heart the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what has been the exceeding greatness of his power toward you who believe. When you know, in other words, that you have inherited great blessing, then you will gain the ability to bless others even those who may revile and insult you. You'll be able to bless them because you will have gained a love for life and you've gained the capacity to see good days because each and every day the blessing of redemption are yours in Christ Jesus. So we see the ethics behind loving life and seeing good days. And now we see the outlook that governs loving life and seeing good days. It is an outlook that recognizes that we are bountifully blessed. It remains for us to consider, finally and briefly, the resources for loving life and seeing good days. I realize that much of what I've been describing sounds good, but isn't always easy to live by the light of what just sounds good. It wouldn't have been easy for those Christians that Peter was addressing either. They were, after all, going through fiery trials. They faced challenges. They were sorely pressed. The devil as a roaring lion was seeking to devour them. And that's always been the case for the people of God throughout the ages. What then do we have to do to bring good-sounding things that pertain to our inheritance in the realm of day-to-day living, especially when living is tough? Well, I think the answer is found in verse 12, chapter 3. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Our resource, you see, is Christ himself. He sees you. He knows you. His thoughts toward you are more than can be numbered. For I know the thoughts I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. 
You have his word to instruct you. You have his presence to guide you. And included in that word is his promise to never leave you or forsake you. We considered that this morning. That is the argument for finding contentment in all circumstances of life, because we know that Christ is with us and will never leave us or forsake us. And what's more, you understand the basis for his dealings with you. He deals with you on the basis of all his son has accomplished. And because you know that you've inherited a blessing, even the blessing of Christ, then you also know that you have the liberty to see every circumstance of life is working together for good to them who are the called according to his purpose. And you have the resource of prayer. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers Verse 12, he sees you and he hears you and he invites you to come before his throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. It is then because of such great resources at our disposal and such a glorious inheritance that has been made ours by Christ that we are able to say we love life and we see good days. I wonder if that's your profession of faith and your outlook this afternoon. There are those Christians, you know, who have a strange propensity for gravitating to gloom and doom. All they manage to see are the things that are wrong in the world. There's undoubtedly much in the world, especially in these days, to discourage us. That's why you need the constant reminder of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, that our light affliction is but for a moment. And not only is it short and passing, but our light affliction is also accomplishing something. It's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So how do you love life and see good days? even in the midst of a crooked and perverse world that brings on death and destruction and awful days. You love life and you see good days by looking not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. That's one of the reasons, you know, that God calls us together week by week on his day, that we might in his house fix our focus on the unseen things that are eternal. Oh, how I hope you can see those unseen things today. If you can, if you can see your inherited blessing in Christ, then you will go forth from God's house today, loving life and seeing good days. Let's close then in prayer. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this time to a close, we thank thee that even in the midst of this sin-cursed world, we have the capacity and the ability to love life and to see good days. 
We know, Lord, we can't gauge this wonderful blessing simply on what the carnal eye sees, but we gauge it rather, O Lord, on the manifestation of thy love that thou hast shown to us in sending Christ to die for our sins. So, Lord, we pray that thou wilt help us to keep our minds and hearts stayed on him. May we practice the ethics that a Christian practices. May we not be pulled down to the same level as the world. May we indeed, dear God, know the joy of salvation as our strength. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.